Welcome back to It Is Written Canada. Thank you for joining us here on location in Peace River, Alberta, where Paul and Tammy Hibbert now live. Today we are joining Paul and Tammy, whose three-year-old son Keenan was kidnapped in September of 2011. Paul and Tammy, welcome to Eddie's Written Canada. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I want to talk to both of you about your conversion years before, how God was preparing your hearts to be able to deal with something like this. As a young child, I, I grew up in a faith where um, the Word was taught to us. Mm -hmm. But as I challenged the Word, it, it didn't seem familiar. They, the, the, from what I was taught and what I read in the Bible were two different things. So I, I kind of walked away from the, of Christianity thinking, these guys aren't practicing what they're preaching. And uh, it wasn't until years later that uh, my children started looking into the Word and, and they were asking questions about God. And it kind of made me go back to revisiting the Word. And at that time I was in the military in the Canadian Armed Forces here. And um, I didn't really know how to answer my children so I talked with a padre, or a chaplain of the, of the Canadian Armed Forces that we had, and he introduced us to the church system on base, but it was, when you'd go one Sunday, it was one thing, and it was a Presbyterian one Sunday, it was a Baptist another time, and, and uh, so we um, had moved our kids over to a, a more predominant church. It was a Baptist church in Edmonton, where we started getting into the Word. Um, so God was working in a few different angles at that time and a few different men in my life as well. And uh, so another man in the Amway business at the time, we were also there, his name was Frank Nicholas, and uh, uh, successful in, in that. But I looked at Frank and I said, what was this look in your eyes? Like there was, he was well-dressed, he was well, he carried himself well, but there was this confidence about Frank that was attractive as a man. And, and the, I asked him one day, I said, what is this look that you have? You know, was it money? Was it was it the cars? And, and he said, no. He says, uh, uh, it's content. And I'm like, okay. You know, content in what? And he says, in Jesus Christ. And there was another seed that had been planted. So I was a tough man. You know, I was in the world. I didn't need anybody. So I kind of shrugged those off. And it wasn't until um, Tammy and I, um, as we were living in the world and coming to the Lord, you know, we were being attacked. Uh, several different ways from the from from Satan's army, you know, because that's usually what happens. And and uh, so when we were separate, we had separate to work on ourselves and 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 to develop who we were, because we were, you know, in the world way, right, and not. And so I was in a pretty dark place at that time. I felt alcohol. Um, I was addicted to pain medicine at that time. Um, and it was a time when. My family was upset with me. My friends were upset with me because I, you know, my, I took a separation from my wife. And it wasn't because I didn't love her. It was because I didn't want to hate her. It was probably one of the best things that ever happened to us because we were able to build on our relationship with God, learn who he was as a couple and submitting to him. And it wasn't until almost a year later from our separation when I decided to do this one last time with God. It was that or suicide. Right? It was, you know, well, what else do you live for? You know, the world didn't give me anything. It took everything away. God has put so many seeds along those paths, and I'm a stubborn man, so it took a long time for him to, to break through and chisel through the rock to get to the soft heart, right? Yeah. But best thing in the world for me. 
my conversion journey began when uh, my husband left me with four small children and I had to take a good look at myself and see that it wasn't all him, that I had issues that I needed to deal with and I went to a doctor and I was diagnosed with OCD and manic depressive and it was bad. I would have to clean under my fridge like three times a day and heaven forbid anybody move anything because I would just like break down in, in tears and and that's part of the reason why we had to separate so that I could fix me and in that process um, I continued going to church and grew in my faith and was baptized while we were separated. Four years ago I was diagnosed with breast cancer and ended up getting both removed, so bilateral mastectomy. When um, my hair fell out, I figured, okay, well, I lost all my beautiful long hair. I'm just gonna do something fun and funky. And once I was blessed with the, the breast cancer butterfly, and I got believe on the other side with the phoenix for like re new birth, because I'm this whole new person than I was before. Sticking with the pink hair though, I don't know, it's better than the gray. <laughs> um, yeah, but every day there's a new struggle. It's just every day you have to recommit it to God and don't worry about it. So take us back to that morning when you went to Keenan's bedroom and he wasn't there. Well, it took a little bit to realize he wasn't there because it was a normal morning. The kids were, the rest of them were in, jumping on our bed, playing, and Keenan's usually a late sleeper, so it wasn't a, a big deal that he wasn't there until I got up to go make his bed and his blankets weren't there, which I thought was kind of odd. And I said, well, where's Keenan? And they're like, well, he's downstairs. So I went down the stairs and I see the two teenage kids at their computers doing their schoolwork and asked them, like, where's Keenan? And they're upstairs sleeping. He's, I haven't seen him. And then my heart started to race and checked the, checked the basement and went through and was flipping beds and opening closets and drawers and all those places where you think a three-year-old would fit. I was opening it and tearing it out and he wasn't there and then ran upstairs and Keenan's not here. And I know immediately like Drew was out the door and he was outside looking and went upstairs and told Paul that Keenan wasn't there and... It was a big day for me. It was getting ready for work. Um, there was a big sale that was happening and I was preparing myself mentally for, um, for this big day. So as I'm in the shower, Tammy comes running over to my, into the bathroom and she's like, Paul, Keenan's missing. And I, I thought she was, you know, just playing around and joking and trying to, you know, lighten the mood so I wasn't so stressed for the day. And I was like, no, you know, I don't need this right now. You know, like I need to think, concentrate on work. And she's like, no, seriously, Keenan's missing. So I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, I tore the house apart. I can't find him anywhere. So we started looking for Keenan, and we started, and then we started phoning around and saying, hey, you know, like we need to shut the equipment down because we're in the middle of the development right now, construction development. And we weren't sure if he was sleepwalking or anything, because who would think, honestly, that somebody could just come and stole your son out of, the, out of his room, right? So as we uh, um, started phoning people and looking for him, um, more and more people started showing up. 
you know, to help and look for Keenan. And next thing you know, we have about 2,400 people. This is like nine o'clock in the morning. And by noon, there's like, 12, you know, 2,000, 3,000 people searching in this small community, right? And it's like, wow. So it was, everything was developing really fast. And RCMP had showed up and they were bringing the dogs down, um, the canine unit and helicopters. And, and, you know, they had to stop everybody to organize a proper search, um, a, a better plan for what was happening. And at that time, it was, you know, pushing closer towards supper time. And that's when they pulled us in, victim services had come along. It became real when victim services, when they showed up and introduced themselves as victim services. I remember that moment. It's like everything, it's like this just got real. And I remember going across the street and just sitting on the step and just crying. And then the kids came over to me and then they would start crying and then say, okay, that's when it's like, okay, God, this is yours because I can't do this on my own and I have to be strong for the kids. I can't be crying because they still need me. And that's what kept it together. It was like from that moment was whatever happens, happens, but I have to be strong for them. And they had told us that there was a possibility that um, an individual who had just been released from jail uh, weeks prior to this um, might be part of this program, but they couldn't for sure give us that information. So we prayed, and we prayed for um, the, the kidnapper was to return, because they've assumed now Keenan was kidnapped. And so we, uh, we prayed that, you know, that if he was kidnapped, that God would protect our son, protect Keenan, and that um, because um, Mr. Hoppy at the time was known as a, as a, as a molester, right, and, and a pedophile. So we wanted to pray with everybody that was in there, in the search and rescue teams. We wanted to pray for safety for them, uh, for Keenan, safety, um, for, but also for the, the, for the gentleman who had Keenan. Uh, we wanted to pray that he was um, uh, impotent and that he had compassion for, Ke for Keenan, that he uh, fell in love with him and just overall would take care of Keenan while you had him. And to know that eventually he would, you know, find in his heart that what he was doing was wrong. And so we were preoccupied with everything that was going on. At the same time, we were still trying to take care of our family. People were asking us questions. Our child is missing and we're still in prayer, right? And we're saying, God, you know. And by the third day, the RCP had asked if we can do um, a plea on, on the network, on TV. Um, we're just going to ask him to bring him into somewhere open. We, we don't really, it didn't matter to us if he got caught. Our whole purpose was that we had Keenan back. On the fourth day, on September 11th, we're looking outside and we see the, the, these people kind of running around our house. But it was actually an RCMP undercover that was like looking at the house. And I'm like, what are you guys doing here? And he's like, we just got a phone call stating that Keenan was returned. I didn't know who was out there, so I went and I woke up our son-in-law, like, Daniel, Paul's, somebody's outside our house, and Paul went out there to check, and he's not back yet. Can you go see what's wrong? And then he was gone for like maybe five minutes, and he comes back, just white as a ghost, and he's like, he's back. What do you mean he's back? Who's back? What's happening? He's like, Keenan's back. 
but they weren't telling me anything. They were just like, hey, he's here. I'm like, is he dead? Is he alive? What's going on? And I could see Keenan's blankets folded on the floor. And I was like, there's his blankets. And, he's, and then they're like, no, he's alive. He's sleeping. And I was like, what? I just remember running over to the house and my legs were like jello. Mm -hmm. And I walk in the door and I see Paul standing there holding Keenan and you know, the Bible says, every knee will bow. I know that feeling, every knee will bow because my legs were not holding me and I was on my knees, my face was on the floor and it's just like, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. That's all I can say, thank you, Lord. And then I grabbed Keenan and I didn't let go of him until I'm sure we were at, probably at the hospital for a while before, because they picked him up in the ambulance and took us to, emer to the hospital and they did the, like the whole rape kit on him and everything and, and yeah, it was something. And, and I remember bringing him home that day and we, there was, oh, it was unbelievable. There was like people everywhere. We went through Tim Hortons for coffee and they're like, they're, they're climbing through the drive-in, out from the drive-through windows and hugging us and, you know, we pull up into Sparwood and the police are like holding back tears, just waving us through and it was like so unreal. So he was returned unharmed. Unharmed, yeah. And you had an opportunity now to meet with the kidnapper. Mm -hmm. What was that conversation like? I, I didn't know I'd be strong enough. You know, RCP had phoned me and they said, hey, Paul, we would like for you to come down and uh, interrogate, you know, and help with the interrogation with Mr. Hopley. And uh, I said, do you think you can handle that? I said, I think so, you know. And then, so I said, okay, we're going to come and pick you up. I looked at Tammy and I said, I, I don't know. I could feel my heart literally pounding out of my chest. And I thought, oh, man, you know, Lord, I don't know if I'm going to break down to my flesh and, and want to do the, you know, just, just get angry with them and... It was a real struggle. I didn't, I was afraid. I didn't know where I would be at, at that stage. I get to the police station and I open the door, the, the, the inspector opens the door. And as I'm coming in, I can feel the calmness set over top of me before I walk into the room. And it's a small room. I don't know, an eight by 10 interrogation room. It's a, it's a pretty small little room. And me and Mr. Hopper now sitting face to face, about two feet in front of each other. We sat down and as he was asking them questions, we were, you know, wanting to know if, uh, if he had done anything with Keenan or why he was doing this. And so I, I was able to ask, like, why would you return him home? You know, we, when we put the plea out was to bring him to a gas station or to an open place or public place where Keenan could be seen and then brought home. And he said, well, I didn't want him to be kidnapped. So I brought him home, I brought him where I knew he was safe. He said, I don't know, I fell in love with him. You know, he was just this good kid and I couldn't hurt him. And we asked him, like, did you do anything to him? And he's like, no, I was impotent. And the detective that was beside me, I, I could see he was, it was almost an instant that he was there at the prayer at the beginning of the first day. And I think I kind of hit him pretty hard in the heart at that time. And it was like, okay, God, you were listening. Because everything that we were talking about, he repeats back in this inter interrogation. And it was just, after that, I couldn't help but talk about the Lord with him. You know, and then they left us alone, me and Mr. Hoppy in the room together. And after we were done discussing, as I was walking out, everybody in the detachment was, you know, um, 
it was just a, it was a surreal moment. It was an eye opener. I know God was very present in that building. There were some people that had been changed because of that. It's a terrible moment, but there was miracles upon miracles at that same time. So how can you be upset when you see such beauty? Exactly. So Paul and Tammy, we are joined by your son, Keenan, and he's not the little three-year-old he once was. Uh, Keenan, take us back to that time. Do you remember anything that happened? Thank you. Um, yes, I actually do. Um, it, when it was nighttime, I remember waking up in, in my kidnapper's arms, wrapped in blankets. So I asked him, where are we going? So he answered with, to a walk. So then I fell back asleep. I woke up a while later at a white car and I asked him, where are we going now? He said that we're going for a drive. So I said, okay, and I fell back asleep. A while later, I woke up in this house and I saw a huge hole on the wall. I thought it was scary, so I asked him what, what that hole was. He said that giant rats lived in there and I believed him, so I didn't want to go in there. So he brought me back upstairs and sat me on this big teddy bear. And once he did, he gave me a peanut butter jam sandwich. I didn't like peanut butter jam, so I decided not to eat that. And then he walked me over to the bedroom and we fell asleep. Mm. And you were pretty tired. It was the middle of the night, right? Yes. Did you think it was someone else who was taking you out of your bed? Yes. I thought it was my mom. Well, you thought it was your mom? <laughs> yes. And so was there any harm? I mean, you were with him for four days. I don't recall any harm being done because I only remember the first night. And from what I remember, no harm was done. Very thankful to God that, and I know your parents were, that you were brought home. Now that was a faith building moment. Obviously your child has returned and you just have kept growing and growing over the years. And now you're very um, active in the Peace River community. What are you doing in the community? When we left uh, Sparwood, um, we wanted to rebuild our family again and, and just to start fresh again and, mm -hmm. and to get things. But uh, for about a year, year and a half, we're kind of going, like, we weren't doing anything. And we're like, Lord, why would we go through all these challenges and to do nothing with it? I was, I'm never, I've never been a biker. I was never interested in biking. And Tammy, but Tammy, yeah, she was always, she grew up on dirt bikes and everything. And she's always asked for a motorcycle. And I don't know what came, came over me, man, but <laughs> I, I was searching one day and I see this motorcycle for sale. And it was a beautiful yellow bike and I thought, I'm gonna get a hold of this lady. And so I, I messaged her and I said, I see your bike is for sale. I don't really have the finances to, um, to buy this bike right now, but if I can do it in payments, that would be great. You know, my wife has gone through a real hard time in the last couple of years, the last five, six years, and I would like to buy her something special that she's always wanted. And she was right away, she's like, absolutely. You know, how about you, uh, you come and get it and you can bring it to her. And so we went and picked it up. And she, she trusted us to pay it whenever, but God put money, enough money in our bank account that we were able to pay for it and um, bought her a bike. Then I felt kind of, well, if she's on a bike, I should probably get on a bike with her. So then I decided I went and bought myself this motorcycle and I thought, oh, this is a bad thought. Get on it and I just fell in love. I've never been off a bike ever since. And the reason why I'm talking about this story is it grows into a ministry. 
was we were searching for different types of outreaches and we wanted something where we can get to the hurt, to the really hurt people because people don't understand when there's no hope, there's Christ. You know, when there's everything else has failed, there's Christ. And it's where I was in my walk, it's where Tammy, we found Christ at the bottom of the pit. And that's where I wanted our ministry. He was for people who have nothing left. And so searching for that ministry was wasn't very easy. And I came across this website called Bikers for Christ. And I was searching that and I was looking at that and I'm a and they were like setting their rescue shop, their rescue shop in their yards of hell. And I'm thinking, this is perfect. This is what I'm looking for. And then I phone up the one of the elders of Bikers for Christ on the website, and it was Mike Anthony. And I phoned him up and I said, Hi, my name is Paul Hebert. And he's like, the, like Paul Hebert from Sparwood. And I'm like, Yeah. Wow. He says, We've been praying about you guys, and we just hit it off like that. And God just made us brothers instantly. You know, we're kingdom brothers, the Holy Spirit connected, and here we are, right? We're just, and we knew this is just something I really wanted to get into. So I started learning the culture and how to bring God into this culture. And it, it just opened up so many more things. And Pastor Nathan was doing a sermon one day about loving your neighbor. And instead of having a barbecue in your backyard, you bring it to your front yard and you invite your neighbors to come out and you barbecue together and you fellowship and you share Christ with them. And we live out in the country, so it's like, well, my neighbor's four to two miles away and it would be kind of hard, so we decided to have a barbecue in a park, in a riverfront park here. And it started with 15 people one Sunday or on a Thursday night. The next, I was 56, 60 people. And then by the third week, there was 200, 250 people. And we had Domino's Pizza had just said, hey, if you guys want pizza, we have unlimited amounts. Here's 30 pizzas. And, and, and we're like, wow. And yeah, and the women's shelter, they were bringing chilies and we were handing out hot dogs. And, and that was how it started. It was a, our ministry just started growing and God started putting leadership in there, started putting mentors and role models I needed in my life, financial supports. And we come Christmas time, we had like 500 people coming out. We have no budget, but God just kept pouring and pouring and he'd open up his heavenly account, right? And and we were building these relationships with people and we we're like, this is awesome. You know, we're, we're meeting street people, we're meeting people who are having, who don't know how to build relationships, they have nowhere to go. So they started coming to Picnic in the Park to meet friends and people were getting baptized, people were getting, they're finding their new future spouses there. Um, people were just building relationships with new friends. So it started becoming, come and meet a, a, a friend you haven't met yet. Coming on to our fifth year, COVID come into play. Um, last year, we started a, a, a charity group now called Servant's Heart Initiative. And uh, now we, last year we have a, a wonderful cooking team. They fed over 10,000 meals last year. Um, to kids, a nutrition program for cool kids that were in school. Uh, we would deliver deliver meals right to their homes. Um, we were able to help elderly people, uh, single parents. Um, we started Celebrate Recovery now here also through our ministry to help people with addictions, but their sin life in general. 
Uh, we're looking at starting up a treatment center now. Um, we went from our family as a ministry to over 140 volunteers. Um, it's, it's grown to a few different communities now, and it just keeps growing. And it's like, God is going, you wanted a ministry? I've got you a ministry. The community did so much for us in Sparwood that there's no ever, no, there never a way you can repay that. You know, we'll always be thankful to the people of Sparwood. Hi there, I'm Nathan Freed. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church in Peace River, Alberta. When I think about Paul and Tammy Hebert, one of the Bible verses that comes to my mind comes from the book of James chapter one. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The reason that I like this verse for Paul and Tammy is that they've had so many different trials that they've walked through in their life, and each one has actually caused them to have a stronger faith. Seeing Paul and Tammy come alongside the church's ministries, and not just serving within our church, but going out into the community and making the Lord's name great, it's an incredible privilege to watch what God has been doing in their life. I'm so excited for the next steps in their journey and to see how God is continuing to be faithful to them. Before we go, I wonder if you could please um, pray for us, Paul. Well, that'd be awesome, thank you. Lord, we just wanna say thank you for this time today, Lord, as we uh, we get to share a story, Lord, and it's not about us, but it's about you, Lord, that we can walk in, in our own ways or we can walk with you, Lord, in that way. And Lord, I just want to uh, put a special blessing out there for everybody who's watching this program, Lord, um, through um, that is written Canada, and Lord, that they can spread your gospel and your word, your, your love, and Bring hope to a nation that's listening, Lord, that can make an impact on people who may feel that there's nothing left in the world, that they hear a testimony through this program, Lord, that they go, there's God, and they have this seeking for who you are, Lord. Lord, I just appreciate every moment that we have that we can serve in your kingdom here on earth at this time. And Lord, in your name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you so much for joining us, Keenan and Paul and Tammy. Thank you. Thank you guys for coming. Friends, Paul and Tammy discovered how to forgive their son's kidnapper, and yet some struggled to forgive. When emotions run too deep and forgiveness feels like an impossibility, what do you do? Our free offer for you is what to do when you can't forgive. This little book will provide practical answers that will help you forgive when you feel like you can't. Friends, we want you to experience the truth that is found in the words of Jesus when he said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Thank you for listening today. If you would like to watch a video of this podcast, please visit iiw.ca.
or you can go to our IIW Canada YouTube channel and click on the Videos tab. Once again, thank you so much for listening.